300 years before Christ, uh, there was a great battle uh, on the on the banks of the Tigris River near the village of Gagamela, where two world powers fought a battle that at the time decided the fate of the world. On the one hand, you had Macedonia and their king Alexander. And then on the other side, you had Persia, the, the great kingdom of Persia. Um, this was uh, many years after Queen Esther. We know from the book of Esther that the kingdom of Persia stretched from Greece to India, which at the time was the entire known world. So on the other side, you had the forces of Persia under King Darius. Uh, this is not the Darius of the Bible, but his great-great-grandson. And they fought on the plains of Gagamala. Alexander's forces numbered roughly 40,000. Darius's forces numbered roughly 120,000. And that is by modern historical uh, estimates. Ancient sources say that Darius had as many as 250,000 to 1 million soldiers. So Alexander was vastly outnumbered, at least 3 to 1, maybe even as much as 10 to 1. Nevertheless, Alexander devised a plan to defeat Darius, and this was his plan. Uh, ancient battles, you you know, whatever your, however large your armies were, you would line them up in two lines. Okay, what Alexander did at the very beginning of the battle, he took his cavalry, and he started to ride to the right side this way for you guys, to the right side of the Persians, making it seem like he was trying to outflank them, attack them from behind. Seeing this, Darius ordered his cavalry to follow Alexander as they rode to the right side. So Darius took all of his cavalry and they all started riding to the right to follow Alexander. This was his mistake, Darius's mistake, because it created this big gap right in the middle of his army where there was no defense. And in the middle of this gap was Darius himself, allegedly according to sources, on his own chariot. And so as Alexander rode to the right, he engaged uh, Darius's cavalry. But then as they were engaged, Alexander and some of his friends broke off from that battle and started to ride directly into the gap towards the Persian king. And the Persian king had no defense because of this gap. And so that is how the armies of Persia, which num outnumbered Alexander by at least three to one, that is how they lost the battle of Gagamala. And that is actually the battle where the entire kingdom of Persia fell into the hand of Alexander and the Macedonians. When we're talking about warfare, gaps are devastating. If you have a gap, this is one surefire way for you to lose the battle or the war. In today's text, God tells us there is another kind of warfare 
that we are engaged in or that the church is engaged in. And as uh, Kurt, no, um, as we read in Ezekiel, uh, that warfare concerning the word of God um, creates gaps. And God calls his church to stand on the wall and to fill those gaps. Similarly to how the Bible in our text in 1 Timothy, Paul calls on Timothy to wage the good warfare. In other words, to stand in the gap so that the word of God is defended. Today, as we look at this text, we're going to talk about it in just three simple points. First, we're going to remind ourselves, what is this warfare? Paul uses the language of warfare. What is exactly this warfare that he's referring to? Second, what are the specifics in this warfare? Who are who were the specific offenders uh, that Paul is speaking about? And what specific actions did he want Timothy to, to take? Or what specific actions did Paul take himself in this warfare? So first, let's talk about what is this warfare that Paul is referring to. If everybody would look at Verse 18, 1 Timothy 1, verse 18, where the Bible says, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Remember, this is not the first time that Paul has charged Timothy earlier in the chapter. Paul charges Timothy to teach no other doctrine in this church. Uh, Paul is writing to Timothy as Paul is uh, contemplating retirement or or, uh, not retirement, but actually death. Uh, As he goes, uh, as he's in prison and he's contemplating death, and he's writing this letter to Timothy who's going to take over his ministry. Uh, the, The main church where Timothy is going to be ministering in is in Ephesus. And Paul reminds Timothy in verse three, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. And then here in verse 18, Paul reminds Timothy of this charge. But here he says, I charge you to wage the good warfare. So what is this warfare? It is a warfare about being faithful to sound doctrine, being faithful to the word of God. That is the warfare that Paul refers to and that he charges Timothy to wage. Now, this word, warfare, is a very interesting word. Uh, it's actually, it sounds very similarly to where we get our English word for strategy. And so the word warfare implies a, a, a long campaign, an expedition. Uh, not like a wildlife expedition, but expedition in the military sense. Uh, during World War One, the 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 uh, and World War Two, the the major forces were called expeditionary forces. Okay, so so military expeditions. This is uh, that word warfare that you see in your Bibles. Now we know that Paul never served in the military. He never actually experienced literal warfare. And yet he uses this word to describe this 
this fight for God's word, that this 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 fight to to maintain sound doctrine. Why? Well, let's contemplate what this metaphor might mean: warfare. Warfare implies that there is going to be a prolonged struggle. It's not just a one-time fight, and you expect it to be over, right? You expect a series of fights, maybe things that escalate. Warfare implies you need to prepare, right? You need to train your forces. You need to train them even in times of peace where there's not war, so that when there's war, they'll be ready to go and fight. If you wait until the battle is upon you, and then you say, "Okay, well, let's begin training," that's too late. That's too late. You need preparation. You need training. In terms of what we're talking about, the warfare for good doctrine,、uh, we might call that discipleship, right?、And、that is why Jesus Christ, Jesus called us to make disciples of every nation. Not just converts, you know, believe and you get into the kingdom of God and that's it, right? Christ commanded us to disciple, to train, to prepare for what? For this warfare, you need a sober mind. You need to have an accurate understanding of your enemy. You can't down look on your enemy. You can't. Put a blindfold on and pretend things aren't happening, right? That's how you lose battles. That's how you lose wars.、Um, I was thinking on the ride over here of the events on that Sunday, that infamous that day that will live in infamy, right? Pearl Harbor, and all the things that happened that should have gave us given us warnings that the Japanese were coming, including the fact. Including the fact that as the Japanese squadrons were flying over Honolulu, there was an American flight instructor in a plane on the skies that saw the planes coming, that radioed it in, and the people of Pearl Harbor said, "Ah, you know, you must be seeing something," and they ignored the warning signs. You need a sober mind. Warfare implies that there will be setbacks. You're not going to win every battle. It's going to be difficult. You might experience losses, pain, difficulty, and you might need to bounce back. You will have to bounce back. Warfare implies the need for resolve, the need for courage, the need to pick yourselves up after a loss and say, "We're going to keep going." The need to not compromise after a defeat.、Um, June, the beginning of June, June sixth, marks the yes, the anniversary of D-Day, or as they knew it at the time, Operation Overlord.、Uh, D-Day、uh, was the day that the Allied forces stormed the beaches of northern France, Normandy, and that began the, the great pushback against. Hitler and Germany in World War II. That was the turning of the tide, June sixth, nineteen forty-four, Operation Overlord. What we don't remember 
is also in June, four years earlier, there was another operation with another name called Operation Dynamo. Sounds fancy, sounds like a victory. No, it was actually a great loss. This was at Dunkirk, also northern France, four years before D-Day. Hitler calls it his greatest victory. Actually, Hitler called it the greatest victory in the history of Germany. Probably was. Where the German forces drove the Allied expedition forces, at that time mostly British, they cornered them into this, this little town in northern France called Dunkirk. And there they had them trapped. And Hitler could have flown planes you know, you know, all day and just obliterated them. And Churchill ordered all types of ships from Britain, fishing boats, private boats, uh, rowboats, to go onto the beaches of Dunkirk to, to evacuate these folks. This was a great loss. Warfare implies the desire to not compromise, even after a loss. Even after you think you've lost, you can't compromise. Imagine what would have happened at that moment after Dunkirk if Churchill said, look, we can't take this anymore. We've suffered a great loss. Let's, comp let's try to get the best deal possible with, with Hitler. Imagine what the world would look like today if Churchill had compromised. And yet, in this warfare, a warfare that's much more important, how many compromises has the Church of God made with heretics? How many compromises have we made simply because we feel like, well, the battle is too hard, we fought too long, we've suffered too many losses, now it's just time to count our losses, you know, take our belongings and run and make compromises to, to whatever issue. Uh, this past week, I read an article where, uh, and, you know, they, they wrote the article as if this was a great victory for the church. The Southern Baptist Convention kicked out two churches because they ordained women pastors, including Saddleback Church, Rick Warren yeah. of, I believe, uh, the Purpose Driven life or something okay yeah okay saddleback church was was removed because they had women pastors but guess what that's where we drew the line how about women deacons and women elders the church has compromised on that issue for so long so we can't call that a victory that's not a victory okay that's after many 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 years of compromises and nobody ever challenges a church that has women, deacons, or elders. Very often, I think that we think that when a church is engaged in a fight, that that is a bad thing. Now, you know, think. I'm not saying here, you literally, but, but imagine. Imagine if you were moving to a new neighborhood and you're looking for a church for your for your family what kind of church would you look for well you know i want a church that's at peace and prospering right where, where there's not a fight going on and we think those are the healthy churches those are the good churches and and a church maybe this church is peaceful and then the church across the street is 
embroiled in a fight all the time. And we think those are the unhealthy churches. You know, I'm not saying here to, to fight just for the sake of fighting, right? Some fights are unbiblical, right? Especially when it's between members and members and it's, you know, it's about non-unbiblical uh, issues. But some fights are necessary. And being at peace, Jesus says, is not always the right thing, right? Jesus says about the last... Yes, Jesus actually says on the last day that when he comes... There will be people who say, peace, peace. He's not coming. And when Obama signed legislation, civil. I don't want to rile us up too much. Yes. No, it's okay. It's all right. Too often we think that a church that is at peace is a good church, and a church that's fighting is a bad church. When that's not. The picture that scripture gives us. Uh, we read Ezekiel 22. Uh, if you, I'm going to turn back there just for a moment. Uh, if you, if you want to turn back there too, I'm not going to read the whole thing again. Just a couple things I want to point out uh, in Ezekiel 22. You need to read this passage. Keeping in mind everything about our culture that's gone wrong, and everything with the church that's gone wrong, and the compromises that the church has made regarding the word of God. Look at verse twenty-five. This is God coming in judgment against Israel. In verse twenty-five, God says the conspiracy of Israel's prophets in her midst. How often do we think? When we see a, a, a heresy take hold in a church, that we think there's a compare, there's a conspiracy going on, right? There's a silent conspiracy going on with the prophets in that church or in that denomination that's allowing this to happen. Notice that in this judgment, God calls out the prophets of Israel. In verse twenty-five, the priests of Israel in twenty-six, and the kings were the princes of Israel in twenty-seven. So, so it's not just the the religious folks in Israel that is failing; it's the whole land, including the princes, that are failing. Prophet, priest, and king—all three officers or types of officers in Israel—are failing into this. Gigantic conspiracy, and what is the conspiracy? It's to lie to people, to teach false doctrine. Verse twenty-six: Her priests have violated my law and profaned my holy things. They've not made known the difference between unclean and clean. They've hidden their eyes from my sabbaths. That's ignoring God's law. Her prophets, verse twenty-eight, see false visions and divining lies for them, saying, "Thus says the Lord." When the Lord has not spoken, that's you know the the, the sin being pointed out in Ezekiel twenty-two is false doctrine. 
when false prophets and false priests and false kings say, thus says the word of God when the word of God has not said so. And so God says in verse 30, who will be a man for me and make a wall and stand in the gap before me? So God is calling for people to stand in the gap. That's, you know, that's becoming, that's tearing the church apart. But then unfortunately, Ezekiel 22 says, I have not found anyone. And therefore, God comes in judgment against Israel. Now, lest we think Ezekiel 22 is a text that's only applicable in the New Testament, we read in the New Testament, uh, Acts 20. This is when Paul, after he began the ministry in Ephesus, now he's leaving Ephesus for the final time, and he meets the Ephesian elders uh, near the shore. This is the last time that he's going to talk to them. We know this passage very well. Verses 29 to 31 of Acts 20. This is what Paul says to them. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. That image of savage wolves coming in and tearing up the flock. That's an allusion to Ezekiel 22. And Paul is saying, whatever you read in Ezekiel 22 in the Old Testament, that's going to happen in the New Testament, when I leave, verse 30, also among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years, I did not cease to warn everyone day and night with tears. Again, the battle is the same as Ezekiel 22, a battle over God's word, a battle against false prophets, against heresy. Against people that say, thus says the Lord, when thus says the Bible, when the Bible hasn't said so. Friends, what should this tell us about the church? What should this tell us about the church? The church that's at peace and the church that fights. You know, in Revelation 11, um, we're not going to read the, 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 the chapter. Um, and we're not going to go too deep into the imagery uh, because Revelation is, is a book of images and, and we can spend a lot of time discussing what the images mean. Okay, But in Revelation 11, uh, if you might remember, that's a part of the, the, the visions that John's receiving from God about the end days. So not just the Old Testament, not just the New Testament, but the days to come, our days and future days. Okay, Revelation 11 is about the two witnesses of God. The two witnesses of God who, who proclaim God's word powerfully and do great miracles of God on earth. Now, we're not going to get into the weeds of, well, who are those two witnesses? Do they mean something literal? Like, as in, like, there will be two great preachers that come out and, 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 and will have great ministries on earth? Or, or, or does God mean something metaphorical? As in the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of the church. And we're not going to get into a discussion about, but, but about that. But, but just know 
that Revelation 11 is about these two witnesses of God, faithful witnesses of God. They do great things for the word of God. They proclaim God's word powerfully on earth. And guess what? The entire earth is against them. And then they kill them. Right? Remember that? Mm -hmm. And then the whole world rejoices over the dead bodies of these two witnesses. That's a picture, friends, of the situation that we are in today, in today's church. There is a warfare going on. We are part of the witness of God and his word. And the whole world is against us. And the whole world would rejoice at our demise. And that's Revelation 11. That's not in the past. That's God talking to us about today and the future. It's a shame that in today's church, that the church is not more on the front lines of this warfare for God's word. You know, I think I listened to the radio, one of my uh, guilty uh, I don't know, uh, things, hobbies. Okay. <laughs> Guilty pleasures. I listen to the radio. It riles me up because every day that it's, it's talk about the cultural war, cultural war and cultural war. Right. And people are right to fight the cultural war, right? Fight back, push back against all the, you know, critical race theory that is just so against the Bible. You know, the Bible says in James, we're not to give favoritism to anyone, not to the rich. You can't say to the rich, you sit here and to the poor, you sit there. Well, that same principle is true. You shouldn't give favoritism to somebody based on the color of their skin. Well, because you're this and you sit here and because of this and you, we treat you like this. And because you're this, we treat you like a victim. And because of this, we treat you like a, like a, uh, you know, like a, like a bad person. You know, all this LGBT stuff right and, and when, when what they're trying to indoctrinate our kids with in school and, and what they're trying to do in women's sports and guess what there is a war going on it's just not the church that's at the forefront of it it's these school board moms and dads right it's these college athletes right it, it's these lunch pail blue collar folks, everyday folks that are fighting this war. They just happen to be on the side of God. They're not all Christian. I'm not saying they're all Christians. They're, most of them are probably not Christian. Most of them probably don't believe the word of God. They just happen by happenstance or by common grace to be on the side of God and on the side of right. When they say, well, there's only two genders. And where's the church? Where's the church? You know, we're still waiting for the, you know, I don't know how many pages, <laughs> right? They, 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 they write a 80 page, I don't know, study paper on critical race theory and how it can be helpful sometimes. And yes, they, they come up with a study on, 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 on gay and lesbian or, you know, officers in, in the, in the church, but now they're going to vote for it presbytery by presbyterian. who knows how that's going to go. We're not at the forefront. We're on the back. We're not even out there fighting the 
the everyday battle, standing up for the principles of God that other people are standing up for by happenstance. They don't even know it. The church should be more in the gaps, right? That's what God is asking for in Ezekiel 22. Who's going to stand for me in the gaps? And if I find no one, God says there will be judgment. And guess what else God says about judgment? Judgment begins in the house of God. Now, Paul goes from talking about warfare. He names two specific examples. Just going to cover this really quickly. First uh, Timothy 1, verses 19 to 20. Uh, he says, Paul continues to write, having faith, we know, wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. Paul gives two specific people, names two specific people, Alexander and Hymenaeus. Let's talk about Alexander first. Uh, luckily, we have some uh, further accounts of Alexander in the Bible where, where it describes what Alexander did. Um, I think it was in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 4. I think I have my reference wrong here. Yes, 2 Timothy 4, verses 14 to 15. Paul talks about Alexander again. There, Paul writes, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. You also must be aware of him, for he has greatly resisted our words. So Alexander is this person in the Ephesus church, probably a leader of some kind, else Paul would not mention him by name or warn Timothy about him. And he's always there pushing back against Paul's words, resisting Paul's words. Maybe Paul preaches on Sunday and Alexander leads a Bible study on the following Friday, resisting Paul's words. We get further information about Alexander in Acts 19. Acts 19 describes a great riot that happens in Ephesus when Paul first goes there. Remember, Paul goes there, preaches the gospel, people convert. But then as people convert and give up their idols, the businessmen start in Ephesus, start losing their business. And that causes a riot, right? And so in the middle of this riot, Acts 19, the Bible says this. And they, the rioters, they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make a defense to the people. But when they found out that he was Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So there you have Alexander. You, you get a sense of his personality there. He kind of seems like he rushes in to, 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 to defend Paul. But really, when you get down to it, it says Alexander motioned with his hands and wanted to make his defense to the people. Maybe there's some jealousy going on between Alexander and Paul. Alexander wanted to make his defense, right? He wanted to make himself, his name known. He wanted to make his thoughts known to the people. Maybe that's why he resists Paul's word at every turn. Now, the Bible doesn't, to be fair, the Bible does not specifically say the heresy of Alexander. But the Bible does specifically talk about the heresy of Hymenaeus. 
Hymenaeus, 2 Timothy 2, 16-18. This is what the Bible says. But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. And so the Bible does talk about Hymenaeus's heresy, his false teaching. His false teaching was that whatever the Bible says about the end days and about the final judgment and about the final resurrection, that's already come. The resurrection has already come. And so that was Hymenaeus's false teaching. And Paul says, uh, you got Timothy, you got to wage a warfare against Hymenaeus. Now, I think it's interesting. Uh, Hymenaeus's view today, we would call that one of the four eschatological views, right? Again, we're not going to get into the weeds, okay? But, but, But there are basically four views about the end days, eschatology, four eschatological views. There's the preterist view that everything has already happened. Everything in Revelation has already happened. It's in the past. That would be where Hymenaeus falls. You have the pre-millennial view, you have the post-millennial view, and then you have the all-millennial view. What's interesting is that Paul calls Hymenaeus a heretic. Like that's Paul's line of when somebody is faithful to God's word and when somebody crosses over it. And Hymenaeus, because of his eschatological view, is a heretic. Paul calls that a heretic. That's the biblical line. That's the standard. And yet, in seminary, when I was taught about eschatology, it's hard to say that word, we were taught that there were four views, and not that one of the views was legitimate and the other three were heresies. We were taught that there could be four views, including uh, including Hymenaeus' view, that everything has already happened. So here's the biblical line for where the battle is, and here's where we are. I mean, we can't even get the days of creation straight. Okay? We can't even get women in offices of the church straight. What do you think Paul would say to these people when Paul says, no, if you've got the wrong eschatological view, you're a heretic. You've got to be thrown out of church. Specific people. Let's talk about specific action. What does Paul want Timothy to do in this warfare? Look at verse 20. Of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. That phrase, to deliver to Satan, means to excommunicate from church. It's the same phrase that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Remember, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is where Paul addresses uh, the man who's sleeping with his father's wife. And the Corinthians are allowing this to happen and not doing a thing about it. And Paul is, he's lost his, figure of speech, he's lost his marbles 
at the audacity of the Corinthians. And he says this, 1 Corinthians 5, verses, verses 4 to 7. In the name of our Lord... Listen to how many times Paul invokes the name Jesus Christ. To remind them who their master is. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of flesh, that his spirit, this is the guy that's sleeping with his father's wife, his mom, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. They're even glorying about it. Proud of it. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump. By so many words there, Paul basically says, you got to remove this leaven. If you let this leaven, bad leaven, stay in the church, that's going to leaven the whole lump. So you've got to purge this leaven out of your lump, meaning excommunicate them, remove them from church. Uh, that's actually a simple directive. And yet, friends, so hard to do. So hard to do. Uh, even with the Southern Baptists. Um, no, not with the Southern Baptists with a denomination that we are very familiar here with in a conservative denomination that we are very familiar here in Philadelphia, right? Uh, recently, I read that the church in Missouri, that that's, that's at the center of, this, of, the trend, uh, of the gay and lesbian storm that's happening in that denomination. They left. They left. That's not good enough. That's not good enough. You should have removed that church and that pastor, you got lucky by them leaving. And by them leaving, the fight's not over. And you're going to think it's over, but it's not. Now, in saying that we must excommunicate, we need to avoid two extremes. We need to avoid the extreme of becoming a graceless church, a church without grace. Remember the words of Christ, Matthew 18. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take you one, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector there christ also ends at you got to re remove the the sinning brother right the, the unrepentant brother uh excommunicate from church but but realize that before that happens christ gives this person opportunity an opportunity an opportunity to repent and to change now admittedly matthew 18 the context is different the context of matthew 18 is when a brother sins against you, okay? And it doesn't necessarily specifically talk about uh, theological errors and heresies. But I would say that the principle remains the same. There needs to be a process and there needs to be an opportunity given to whichever teacher, whichever preacher to repent and learn 
and change. Just like what Aquila and Priscilla did with Apollos. Remember? Apollos, the Bible says, taught accurately except for one thing. He taught the baptism of John. Now, if the church is supposed to take out every minister and every preacher at the very first instance of a mistake that they make on the pulpit, then guess what? You're not going to have many, if any, preachers left, right? Because we're all sinners, right? We're all sinners and we make mistakes. That's the unfortunate part of this. We're all sinners and we make mistakes. You're always supposed to check my preaching with the word of God as the Berean church did, right? But if we removed everyone at their first mistake, then we would have nobody left. We need to follow the example of Aquila and Priscilla. What did they do? They took Apollos aside and said, listen, brother, you're, you're, you're teaching very accurately, except for this one thing. You're only talking about the, the baptism of the John. I mean, that's a serious issue. If you're only talking about the baptism of the John as the, as the baptism and not the baptism of Christ, basically you're saying the Messiah hasn't come yet. Right? If we still need the baptism of John, John's baptism was the Messiah is coming. So if that's all we teach, then basically we're saying the Messiah isn't here yet. So how serious was Apollos' error? Pretty serious. And yet Aquila took him aside and said, look, brother, here's the right baptism, the baptism of Christ. And here's the point. Apollos listened. He was teachable and he changed. So we need to give grace. We need to give folks a chance to repent and change. However, we need to avoid that other extreme of being so gracious and so lenient and so loving, quote-unquote loving, that we become a truthless church. So we can't be graceless, but we also can't become truthless. Much easier said than done. You know, as I was preparing today's sermon, I, I thought, you know, this is one of the, this, this isn't a passage that, that really, you know, when you're doing discipleship, you come to this passage all the time and you say, like, memorize this passage, right? Because it's important to you. But really, if you think about it, uh, to put this passage into practice, it's much easier said than done. Because imagine all the ways the other side will harass you and, you know, call you bad names. Imagine all the bad names that you will be called when you decide to stand for God's word, when you decide to stand in the gap. They're going to call you unloving. They're going to call you ungracious. You troublemaker. (laughs) You disruptor of the peace of the church. Right? That phrase has been thrown around way too many times. You're even a heretic yourself. You know, don't you know about this guy? You know, he's a sinner. He's not perfect. But don't you see his family? Don't you see his ministry? Don't you see all the books that he's written in, in, in the church and the large numbers of people that, that he's bringing in? You know, how can you speak up against this guy? Think of all the insults that they will throw at you. This is why this text is 
I would say one of the hardest texts to, to, to actually carry out in church. You know, of all the of all the church heresies that have gotten hold of the church and, and, and still, you know, we haven't gotten rid of them. Right? Basically it's because the good guys compromise and compromise and compromise. Because the warfare just gets too much for them and they decide to, well, either capitulate or just to say, look, I've had enough personally and I just want this to be done with. And that's why we don't talk about the days of creation in church anymore and what is the right interpretation. And various views are just accepted as okay. Right? That's not even a battle anymore. We've lost that war. Seemingly. Seemingly. God doesn't lose. Right? He hasn't lost. And he's still looking for people to stand in the gap. You know, to conclude, in a few moments, we're going to read Psalm 94. I want to turn your attention there. In seminary, when, when, I, when they taught Psalm 24, they only focused on one verse, verse 19. Where the, uh, where the Bible says, In the multitude of my anxieties within me, your comforts delight my soul. And the way this was taught in seminary was, whenever you're stressed out, whenever you're depressed, whenever you have anxieties, God comforts your soul. And that's true. Generally, that's true. But that is not the context of Psalm 94. Psalm 94 is the psalmist contemplating the situation of Ezekiel 22, right? All these heretics, Israel's prophet, priests, and kings falling under heresy and teaching the people heresy, devouring them. And Psalm, the psalmist hearing God's call to, to stand in the gap. And the psalmist saying, God, I can't. It's too hard. Right? Verse 4. They, the bad guys, utter speech. And speak insolent things. All the workers of iniquity boast in themselves. They break in pieces your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the fatherless. And yet they say, the Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob understand. Right? That's the battle that the psalmist is involved in. It's people speaking these false words, teaching these false things about God's word, about God. And the psalmist understanding... I've got to stand in the gap and him losing courage. Verse 16, right? As he contemplates standing in the gap, the psalmist says, who will rise up for me against the evildoers? I can't do it myself. Who will stand up for me against the workers of iniquity? Verse 17, unless the Lord had been my help, my soul would soon have settled in silence, right? That's compromise, wow. right? Isn't that compromise in the face of heresy? When the truth speakers say, I've had enough, I'll just be silent, I give up. That's what the psalmist is talking about. Unless the Lord had been my help, my soul would soon have settled in silence. If I say my foot slips, your mercy, O Lord, will hold me up. And then verse 19, in the multitude of my anxieties within me, when I think about going up against all the false prophets and the false priests and the false kings, in the multitude of 
all my anxieties that arise up and all my fears. How am I going to do this? I can't do this alone. I can't fight this fight. In the midst of those anxieties, your comforts delight my soul. Friends, we need to rely on God in this warfare. That is why our verses repeat that word, a charge. Right, verse eighteen. This charge, a commit to you. I commit to you, son Timothy. We talked about before how a charge means a command, a command that you can't break. You know, every every imperative in Scripture is a charge. Without God saying, "I charge you to do this," right? The Ten Commandments are a charge, right? God doesn't say, "I charge you to keep the Ten Commandments." Just God just commands it, and we implicitly know that's a charge. Right, that's a charge. We're supposed to keep the Ten Commandments. Right, those are charges, even though that's it's not said uh, outrightly that it's a charge. So why do you think God says that we're charged here? It's because God knows how difficult the warfare is, and how easy it is for us who are contemplating standing in the gap to fix our eyes on our enemies and on ourselves and our own inabilities and our own weaknesses. And say, I can't do this. The anxieties within me are multiplying, right? And God says, No. Remember, this is my charge to you. Fix your eyes on me. Fix your eyes on me. Not only am I going to be your comfort, but you're going to be held accountable, accountable for this, right? In the end, you know, you have all the people that will judge you. And say mean things and harsh things and nasty things about you when you stand in the gap, but in the end, none of their words will matter. In the end, there's only one person's word that's going to matter, and that's God's. And God's going to say, "Were you faithful? Were you faithful?" Right when there was a gap, and I needed somebody to stand in it. That's the warfare that we are in. May God give us the courage. The resolve and the comfort—the comfort from God that we need in order to wage this warfare. Let us pray, Heavenly Father. We we beseech you to to come aid us. You know we're a little church, and every week when we go out to Sixty Ninth Street, we are standing in the gap. Lord, you know the numerous number of people out there in this area who do not have your truth, and you know the multitude of lying voices that speak into these people's lives every day. This is such a diverse and such a dark area, and yet, Lord, this church—they are on the front lines, and they are standing in the gap. And I know there is fear. I know there is discouragement, and I know the warfare is not easy. So, Lord, comfort us. Even in a text like today, where you remind us of the warfare and what it takes to fight it, Lord, comfort us, strengthen us, help fix our eyes not on the men around us, not on even ourselves and our our inabilities. But help us to fix our eyes on you, the one who gave us 
this charge. Be everything we need. Protect us. Give us your spirit that we might fight this battle faithfully. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.